I'm going to remove myself as soon as possible. <laughs> we should probably wait until everybody's off the stage before we start the next ones. Hi, everyone. Hi, Good Melissa. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We're going to give it a couple seconds. I see 195 people entering. We had about 319 at the last session. We're two minutes behind schedule, which is fine. I am going to introduce Melissa, and then we will have her present. Welcome, everyone, to the 1030 session. It is my privilege and pl pleasure to introduce Dr. Melissa Borja, who is Assistant Professor of American Culture at the University of Michigan, where she is a core faculty member in the Asian Pacific Islander American Studies Program. She researches migration, religion, politics, pluralism, and race in the United States and the Pacific world, with special attention to how religious beliefs and practices have developed in the context of modern America state, of the modern American state. Her book, Follow the New Way, Hmong Refugee Resettlement and the Practice of American Religious Pluralism, explores the religious dimensions of American refugee care. She is an affiliated researcher with the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center, which unites scholars and community organizations to analyze and prevent hate incidents targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Melissa earned a PhD in history from Columbia University and an MA from the University of Chicago and an AB from Harvard University. Melissa, welcome, and the floor is yours. Good morning, everybody, or if you are joining from Asia, good afternoon. I'm so glad to be here to have a chance to share my research on this pressing topic. And I'm going to talk about an issue that I think is bearing on the hearts of many of us right now, which is the ongoing problem of anti-Asian racism and violence. But I also hope that what I'm going to present to you today is an opportunity for you to think about how Asian American are, Asian American people are working for change. And as uh, Dr. Chow said earlier, finding an opportunity to see power in this moment of pain. So I'm going to begin first by sharing my screen. I hope everyone can see it okay. Okay, so um, this project, or excuse me, this presentation will draw on a research project I've been doing at the University of Michigan. And at the University of Michigan, my research team uses news media to track instances of anti-Asian racism and Asian American resistance to racism. So I'll begin first by providing an overview of anti-Asian racism because I think it's important for us to, um, you know, to understand how this is uh, sort of deeply rooted in American history. And then I'll talk about what we know in the past year uh, in terms of how Asian Americans have experienced racism and are resisting it. So a few basic concepts, some of this will be review if you participated in Dr. Hong's presentation in the last 30 minutes. Um, but one thing you should know is that anti-Asian racism is not a new phenomenon in the United States. In fact, it's deeply rooted in American history. And very often scholars will describe anti-Asian racism in terms of yellow peril fears. 
Now, yellow peril refers to the idea that Asian people are a multifaceted threat to America. And this political cartoon, which was created by George Keller during the period uh, of Chinese exclusion, I think articulates really concisely some of the main ways that people saw Asian people as a threat, as a yellow peril threat specifically. On one side of the caricature's head, you see the words ruined white labor, a suggestion that Chinese immigrants are a threat to the economic prosperity of, Asian, uh, of American workers. You see out of the top of the head, the word diseases, perception that Asian people are an epidemiological threat uh, to the health of America. And then on the other side of the head, the words immorality and filth, the idea that Asian people are a moral and religious threat to uh, Christian America. So these are really important ideas that have found articulation throughout U.S. history in a variety of ways. Uh, yellow peril fears animated the push to exclude Chinese and other Asian immigrants. It animated the discriminatory treatment of Asian immigrants at the border and the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Now, I want to highlight how the yellow peril fear of Asian people as a disease threat um, is really important and has a deep-rooted history that shapes how we understand the current moment. There's a long-standing belief that Asian people are particularly diseased and particularly dangerous for the threat to public health that they pose. This is, of course, false and very much rooted in racist stereotypes of Asian people. Um, one thing that is important to note is that the idea that Chinese people and Asian people bring diseases to the United States was used to justify their exclusion. And when Chinese immigrants came to the United States, their bodies were uh, inspected to a greater degree than other immigrants, to the point that Chinese immigrants often complained of the discriminatory nature of these uh, uh, medical exams. So the image on the screen is of a medical exam at Angel Island, which is right off the coast of San Francisco. Chinese immigrants who, were, um, who had to experience these medical exams complained about them so much that when they wrote poems on the walls of Angel Island, where they were detained, they often complained about these uh, medical exams as being invasive and barbarous and despotic. So this was an example of how Asian people over a century ago were seen as a medical threat and how that idea has shaped how immigrants have been accepted. But I think it's really important to emphasize that as long as Asian Americans have experienced racism and discrimination, they've also resisted it. So around the same time that Asian people were being excluded from migration, Asian Americans in the United States were finding ways to assert that they too belong. And one thing uh, that I always point to is the example of the Tate family in San Francisco. The Tate family insisted that their children have the right to go to school just like other white children. Um, and I think this is a really powerful example of how not only racism has a deep history in the United States, but also Asian American resistance to racism. Now, as Dr. Hong discussed in the past half hour, things really changed throughout the course of the 20th century as more and more Asian migrants uh, came to the U.S. as Asian American population grew we begin to see Filipino Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans identifying themselves under the pragmatic political category of Asian American.
But even as Asian Americans were experiencing greater prominence, uh, they were growing in number in the United States, they were often still seen as a foreigner and as a threat. And whenever Asian Americans um, have been caught in between the US and another Asian country in terms of geopolitical tensions or economic tensions, Asian American people can be vulnerable. The picture on this slide is of Vincent Chin, a man who's Chinese American, killed in June 1982, as it turns out not very far from where I was born. I was born in May 1982 in Michigan, and he was killed not far from um, where I was born and raised. So the killing of Vincent Chin was very much uh, a watershed moment for Asian Americans in Michigan and broadly in the United States because he was killed, seen as a threat. He's Chinese American, but during this time, white automakers really blamed um, Japanese automakers for the misfortune of uh, um, American automobile companies. And so his killing is a really powerful example of how Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans can continue to be seen as a threat, as a yellow peril threat, as a foreigner, um, and therefore be subjected to racism and violence. Now I wanna bring us to the current day. Here we are in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic begins. And one thing that is important to know is that in the decade up until 2020, there had actually been a decline in anti-Asian bias that researchers had found. But this was reversed in the first week of March when uh, the COVID-19 pandemic um, became a, a global pandemic. Um, now, one thing that uh, researchers have found is that that decline in attitudes, or rather that the reversal in attitudes and the increase in negative attitudes about Asian people coincided with the time when a lot of people of prominence in politics and in media began to use stigmatizing rhetoric that associated the coronavirus with China. So terms like China virus, Wuhan flu, Kung flu, these were terms that the WHO and the CDC explicitly recommended against. In 2015, the WHO actually changed its naming convention so that an infectious disease wouldn't be associated with a particular group of people or a place for fear of there being racist backlash against that group of people. And indeed, that is what happened. So I'm going to talk about what we know about anti-Asian racism and violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, first of all, I should begin to tell you a little bit about how I know all of these things. Um, my research team uh, comprises student researchers from five different universities. Um, and we looked at all of the newspaper articles we could find about anti-Asian racism related to COVID in 2020. We looked from January 1st, 2020, right around the, uh, the time there were the first reports about the new coronavirus coming out of Asia. And we looked all the way through December 31st. We're going to begin collecting um, information about 2021 pretty soon, we hope. For that full year, we identified 4,600 newspaper articles. And it was roughly split in coverage of Asian Americans experiencing racism and also um, Asian Americans resisting racism. A few more articles about experiences of racism, but it was pretty split. So I'm gonna talk about both topics. First of all, what do we know about what types of racist experiences Asian Americans had? Well, in news media, we identified 1,176 unique incidents of anti-Asian racism. These included a few types of anti-Asian racism, which I'll delineate here. 
we looked at, first of all, harassment. And this was divided into physical harassment, verbal harassment, and nonverbal harassment. We also looked at racist statements. And racist statements were different from harassment in that harassment we understood as acts of harm directed against an individual or a specific group of individuals, whereas racist statements were statements made by individuals or organizations that were broadly racist or reproduced negative stereotypes about Asian people. We counted many of those as well. Now, a lot of the news media right now is talking about hate crimes. In fact, just yesterday, we saw an amazing act of bipartisanship in Washington, D.C. as the Senate approved a 94 to 1 a bill that addresses anti-Asian hate crimes. And it is true, there have been a lot of hate crimes against Asian Americans in the past year. The Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at, the, at California State University San Bernardino found a 145% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes in 2020 in 16 of the US's largest cities. And the incident that received the most news coverage in 2020 was investigated as a hate crime. It was the stabbing of a Burmese American family that was shopping at a Sam's Club in Texas. Now this was a particularly terrible event for a few obvious reasons. First of all, it involved terrible violence. It involved an attack on an entire family. The children were ages two and six, so really vulnerable people. The other thing that makes it notable it was very, is that it was very clearly about COVID and very clearly about race. The man who stabbed the family attacked the family and yelled that he believed that they had the coronavirus and were bringing it to the United States to infect other people. In the wake of this incident, the FBI issued a statement saying that they were worried about a rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans because of their um, pop, the popular belief that they were associated with the coronavirus. So this event um, was covered in news media between 155 and 158 times, I forget the precise number, but it was very widely covered in news media. However, we do know that there are many ways that anti-Asian racism um, finds expression. And so to only focus on hate crimes is to miss the bigger picture, that there are a variety of ways that Asian Americans have experienced racism in the past year. Some of these things are things that amount to the level of a hate crime, like the stabbing of this Bernice family in Texas. But some of them are ones that wouldn't necessarily get counted as a hate crime, but are still acts of racism that harm people. These include um, being verbally harassed, being yelled at on the street, being avoided while you are at a store, being spit upon and coughed upon, um, having your business graffitied, and many forms of racism. Um, one thing I should add, I think a lot of us have experienced these incidents ourselves or know people who've experienced these things. And so there's so many experiences of anti-Asian racism that never make it to being reported to law enforcement to stop AAPI hate or to news media. So this is really only the tip of the iceberg that I'm presenting today. What do we know though, based on what information we have? In my team's research, we found that nearly Asian, every Asian ethnic group has been affected. So a lot of the stigmatizing rhetoric has been about China. However, 14 different ethnic groups have been affected, at least reported in news media. It, this affects all Asian Americans. We also know that it affects Asian Americans all across the country. 
Most of the news media has covered incidents in California and New York, and that makes sense given how many Asian Americans are there um, and how much prominence Asian Americans have in media in those parts of the country. But we know that there were incidents all across America, nearly every state. We know that Asian Americans of all ages have been affected. We counted 85 incidents in 2020 that, uh, in which children were the victims. Sometimes these incidents were children on their way to school being attacked while they're being walked by their parents to the bus stop or on the subway. Many incidents also involved the elderly. And we also know that women disproportionately experienced anti-Asian hate incidents, 64%. And this converges with what other researchers have found. Stop AAPI Hate's self-reported data found that 68% of the reports were coming from women. I also want to highlight the relationship of these anti-Asian hate incidents and religious institutions. So there were numerous instances in which Asian American religious institutions were targeted. There were um, instances of temples being vandalized in Canada, in Texas, in Arkansas. There were many instances where Asian American Christian churches were also broken into and vandalized. Um, and even Christian churches have been sites where pastors and people of prominence have said racist things and reproduced stigmatizing stereotypes. But I want to end on a hopeful note. So what are Asian Americans doing to resist the racism? Like I said before, there's a really long history of Asian Americans responding to injustice with strength and with power. And we counted over a thousand incidents of Asian Americans resisting racism. In terms of religious dimensions of this, we found that um, this resistance to racism was both ecumenical and it was also interracial and interfaith. So I'll give you a few examples. Here are some headlines that I took screenshots of to show how this was very ecumenical um, and inter interfaith. Um, you have on the left uh, a tweet from James Martin, a very prominent progressive Catholic, uh, Catholic priest. We have the United Church of Christ um, urging caution about how to talk about the coronavirus. This is early on in the pandemic, even before it was officially a pandemic. We have a joint editorial written by um, Keith Ellison, a black Muslim man, and Jonathan Greenblatt, a white Jewish man of the Anti-Defamation League, saying that we need to work together and show solidarity. But I will say in my own organizing, I do a lot of organizing work here where I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I know that there has been amazing support of people of different um, religious communities and racial communities. So the, actually I should highlight the fact that um, the first people to show support for Asian Americans experiencing racism in Indianapolis were Muslim groups because they too had been scapegoated in the wake of 9-11. And remembering the injustice of that, they were the first ones to show care and concern for their Asian American neighbors here in Indiana. So what kind of things are they doing? They're issuing statements. People are rallying. This is an image of a, a rally on town hall in one town in New Jersey after a Chinese restaurant was vandalized. Faith leaders and other community leaders gathered together to show support. Um, religious communities are also showing their commitment to serving community um, by making donations. And so there's been an outpouring of generosity, care, concern, and solidarity. Um, in the face of all of this hate uh, and racism. So I just want to conclude with a few examples of how we're seeing activism at the local, state, and national, and global level. 
this is a screenshot of um, a resolution in this Indiana State Senate. Um, the city council issued a resolution on anti-Asian racism just last week. I mentioned this because our speaker later today is the executive director of National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, and they've been really active in calling for accountability of, of government officials. So this is a group I happen to be involved with also here in Indiana. So a lot of activism at the local and state level. Last night's um, Senate actions and other actions throughout the year show that Asian American elected officials at the national level are calling for change. And finally, I want to emphasize that anti-Asian racism during COVID is not just an American problem, it's a global problem. And so we're seeing activists all around the world saying it's not okay to blame Asian people for the coronavirus. They're creating reporting me mechanisms, they're organizing. So this is really amazing global activism as well. And we need to remember that we're not doing this alone. We're working in solidarity with people who are standing for justice all across the globe. So I'm gonna conclude there and I am open to all of your questions. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing your, your latest research on all of these stories of the experience of anti-Asian racism and the resistance of anti-Asian racism. I think the resistance stories are really important. I think we need to collect those stories, uh, disseminate those stories as sources of hope and empowerment for other communities. I see some very interesting questions. I have one here. We'll begin with this one. These findings in general media are astounding. Are there counterpart findings from ethnic outlets? Realizing these media require wide ranging language ability for research. I wonder about the communities that are being imagined by Enclave. So I take it that this question is, is addressing that maybe a Korean language, uh, Japanese language, Chinese language source might have additional or counter perspectives. Have you thought much about alternative media sources? This is such a great question. And I think the answer is yes, this issue is being covered differently in different um, language media. So I just hired four research assistants to study Chinese language media in the US and I'm trying to find a Korean language reader. If you happen to know anyone who can read Korean well, who would like to help with that. One thing I, I do um, suspect or do know, this is what my Chinese language researchers are telling me, is that there are many more incidents that are being reported in ethnic media than are reported in mainstream media. And I think there'll be different types of incidents. So the greater volume and greater, a different type. Um, the other thing that a journalist mentioned to me is that Korean language media in the wake of Atlanta had actually reported that there were racist statements yelled by the shooter. And that was not discussed in the English language media, but it was discussed in the Korean language media. So I think that's very interesting. We'll, I suspect, learn about these incidents in a completely different way if we track it through um, ethnic media. So thank you for this question, and, I, and I'm on it. Yeah. Kalani has a, a really great question here. Asian American authors have spoken about the role of silence in Asian American identity. And Kalani cites Kathy, oops. It just disappeared on me. Um, <laughs> interesting. Oh, here we go. Uh, Kathy Park Hong, EJ Ko, Ocean Vuong. The challenge of getting our elders to speak up. Do you have a sense of the, of the increase in reporting is also a matter of coverage 
uh, a new or bolder generation? What to what do we attribute the the increase in coverage to? Silence is such an interesting issue, and I and I have to confess I feel deeply conflicted about the narrative of Asian Americans being silent because yes, some subset of the Asian American population is silent because they don't speak English, for example. <laughs> I think um, Dr. Park's presentation earlier, I think pointed to very practical reasons why some stories are not heard in the mainstream media um, and not heard by other reporting mechanisms, the language barriers part of it. I'm less enthusiastic about cultural explanations of Asian American silence because I don't think the evidence bears it out that people are quiet about this. I think the bigger issue is that they are not heard on this issue. Um, so so I, I just wanna help us think through that the issue of silence and the issue of loudness means different things in different contexts. And I think we should handle those themes with great sensitivity. The issue right. of news media coverage is very interesting. I don't know if it increased in 2020 compared to 2019, because I didn't track 2019. But I do know that the news media coverage of this really varied throughout 2020. So there was a lot of news media coverage in March and April, and then it basically dropped off at the end of mm -hmm. 2020. What this signals to me, and I should add that there wasn't an end to anti-Asian hate incidents reported in other outlets. This signals to me that we need to continue to hold news media accountable and encourage them to cover these issues. And I can say from my own organizing experience that if you have an Asian American community organization with attention to communication and relationship with media, they will cover your issues more. So all of you organizers out there, make sure when you organize, you develop a communications apparatus to share your stories and develop relationships with journalists. This is a critical part of organizing effectively. Thank you, Melissa. Here's a, here's a policy question. What gaps still exist in the recent House Senate bills versus the reality need to address racist incidents nationwide? How, how effective do you think the current the new legislation is and what gaps do you see in it? I, I'm enthusiastic about some things and less enthusiastic about others. I think the, the legislation overwhelmingly focuses on hate crimes. And that is a reactive response. It's a law enforcement heavy response that doesn't necessarily prevent the incidents from happening in the first place. So one thing that I am very excited about and enthusiastic about is the fact that the bill that was passed just yesterday or that, that was just voted on in the Senate yesterday included public awareness campaigns. I think those are measures that can be more uh, effective in preventing not just the most severe hate crimes, but the more subtle forms of racism that still have an impact on people's safety and well-being. Um, our goal should be to use every policy we can to build safe and inclusive communities in every context. And I'm talking here at the national level, state level, local level, and hyper-local level. So I'd love to see more attention to making sure there is greater understanding of Asian American experiences in our curriculum. I know Illinois just did a great job with passing that. We're working on that in Michigan. I'd love to see more anti-bullying education. Um, I'd love to see more anti-racism education in general. I'd love to see all sorts of efforts to help communities know the resources that currently exist. 
I do know that among the people that uh, I had a student researcher do an interview with a bunch of small business owners, a lot of them had no idea where to report an incident if one happened to them, 40%. So we need to educate people to know about the resources that currently exist. And I'd love to see legislation address all of those issues to prevent harm from happening in the first place. And there we have the launch of Melissa Borja's political campaign in the state of Indiana. I would vote for you, Melissa. That was a wonderful comment. Let's, um, we're going to end the session here. And I'm going to invite all of our morning speakers, so Jerry, Jane, and Melissa, after I end the session, we're going to join the 11 a.m. panel discussion. So we're going to conclude here, here and then have a wide-ranging um, conversation among the speakers and with the audience for the next hour. Thank you, Melissa. I'm ending the session. Here we go.